Happy New Year, everyone. I'm Nate Vinio, and this is Something to Gnaw On, a short podcast for those with a short attention span or just short on time, designed to give you something to mentally and spiritually chew on throughout your day, a Bible study in bite-sized form, if you will. This episode is an idiot's guide to Roman citizenship, a.k.a. a brief study on repentance. A few short years after the crucifixion of Jesus, Joseph was born into a Jewish family that boasted priestly and royal lineage. At 20, he negotiated with Emperor Nero for the release of Jewish prisoners. Between 25 and 30, he designed the defenses of many Jewish cities and was highly esteemed among the Jews for his zeal in fighting the Romans, both as a warrior and as a chess player or a strategist. And eventually, he became a general in the Great Revolt against Rome. Fighting the Romans was a losing proposition, really, yet most Jews would fight to the death. Few would surrender. A Roman attack could be over in as little as 6 to 12 hours on an outlying Jewish community. However, the siege at Jotapata lasted 47 days. Joseph designed this town with concentric walls. The rationale behind such architecture was to create a fish-in-the-barrel environment when the enemy would penetrate the first wall. The Roman army that attacked numbered 60,000, according to some accounts, a number that's obviously contested, but regardless, the Romans outnumbered them in bodies, weaponry, and experience. The two-wall system created a bottleneck whereby the Jews only needed to fight the first part of the army, even if they were significantly outnumbered. The bottleneck created a target-rich environment where hurling boulders and arrows and spears had a heightened degree of impact on the enemy. On several occasions, they poured hot oil on the Romans, which penetrated the joints of their armor and scalded their skin below. It may not have killed the soldiers, but it's sure hard to fight when you're nursing second and third degree burns. As Joseph tells it, as the siege approached its final days, a Jewish soldier launched an arrow at Flavius Vespasian, the Roman general. The archer hit him in the toe. It invigorated Vespasian and the army, and within a few short days, the siege was finally over. In the final push, the Romans only lose one soldier. They take 1,200 Jews captive, mostly women and children, and the total number of Jews killed in the battle is north of 10,000. And in the final melee, 40 officers escape to the caves. While backed into a cave with no means of escape, Joseph suggests a form of surrender to the 40. They nearly take his life in response. Backpedaling to regain his leadership role, Joseph shifts the discussion, and mass suicide emerges as the best solution. It was preferable to dying at the end of a Roman spear or being captured alive. While suicide would be a violation of Jewish law, they opt to kill each other. How this is more legal than suicide is beyond me, but that's beside the point. That's what they did. They begin taking each other's lives in a semi-random sequence, a counting game, really. The 40 men sit in a circle, and every third man is killed by his neighbor. The act is carried out around the circle five times until Joseph and another officer remain. The historical assumption is that Joseph, aware of the sequence ahead of time, positions himself knowing he'd be one of the last two survivors. Joseph and the other survivor subsequently surrender to Roman generals Vespasian and Titus a father-son combination, both of which eventually become Caesar's. 
While most of the Roman army wanted to execute Joseph for the grievous manner in which he inflicted casualties upon them over the past 47 days, Flavius Titus and Vespasian wanted him alive, a move that would hopefully dishearten the Jews, so they took him as their slave. They changed his name to Flavius Titus Josephus, denoting his status as a slave to Titus. And as a gift to his new master, Flavius Josephus began to pen the History of the Jews, which included a volume entitled The Wars of the Jews. Side note here, it should be noted that the work of Flavius Josephus is one of the first extra-biblical sources to acknowledge the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Back to the script. As a result of his surrender, a few short years later, Titus granted Josephus his freedom and Roman citizenship, and he lived out his days in Rome. And while some historians and archaeologists dispute the details of Josephus' account, one thing is certain. Josephus surrendered and became a slave, became a valuable asset to Flavius Titus, and ultimately became a willing and productive Roman citizen a thorough betrayal of his Jewish heritage and fellow soldiers. And while the word surrender from a 2023 American Christian point of view may make sense in terms of Josephus' defection, it is not actually the word he uses. In his work, The War of the Jews, he uses the word repent or metanoia in the Greek when telling the cave story. In fact, he uses the word repent 36 times and the word surrender 33 times, drawing both similarity and distinction between the two words. On the surface, repent and surrender seem to be used as synonyms. Both words contain the sense of yielding or submitting to another entity. More often, though, they are subtly and significantly different. Surrender carries the implication that submission of the weaker entity is forced by the stronger entity. Repent carries the implication that the weaker entity submits willfully to the stronger entity. This is not the end of the implication of repentance. However, for the moment, I want to consider two excerpts from War of the Jews by Josephus. The first is regarding Vespasian's mindset before the attack, and it comes from Book 3, Chapter 6, Verse 3 of the Wars of the Jews. Quote, and thus did Vespasian march with his army, and came to the bounds of Galilee, where he pitched his camp and restrained his soldiers, who were eager for war. He also showed his army to the enemy, in order to affright them, and to afford them a season for repentance, to see whether they would change their minds before it came to battle. And at that same time, he got things ready for besieging their strong minds. And indeed, this sight of the general brought many to repent of their revolt. You can see here that the idea is, I hope you repent, but if not, you will surrender. It's an interesting addendum here. If you move in book 3 to chapter 7, verse 11, uh, don't have time to go into it right now, but in the middle of the battle, he pulls his troops back and he gives the Jews an opportunity to repent again. The second excerpt I wanted to read was regarding Josephus' plea to the Jews on the Jerusalem wall. 
And granted, we are moving three years in the future from Josephus' capture here, but what they do is they bring Josephus down to Jerusalem during the siege on Jerusalem, and they march him right up to the wall, and they hope to have Josephus plead with the Jews uh, to repent, to, to give up. And this is what he says. It's in Book 5, Chapter 9, Verse 4, quote, There is a place left for your preservation, if you will be willing to accept of it. And God is easily reconciled to those that confess their faults and repent of them. O hard-hearted wretches as you are, cast away all your arms and take pity on your own country already going to ruin. Return from your wicked ways and have regard for the excellency of that city which you are going to betray. He sounds like an Old Testament prophet. But the essence of what Josephus is arguing with his brothers is, to survive this siege, you must submit willingly. To survive after the siege, you will have to serve Rome willingly. And a prideful desire to defend Jerusalem without the means to defend Jerusalem, and that was their case, will assure the destruction of Jerusalem. Repentance saves the city. Pride destroys the city. The essence of his argument is simply summed up in the word, repent, metanoia. As a matter of perspective, it's also believed that Josephus' family is trapped behind the wall at this time. So you can imagine how much of an impassioned plea this was. He's not only pleading for the peace on a grand scale for the nation and the city, he's pleading for the lives of his loved ones, which... Unfortunately, he never saw again due to the lack of repentance around them. And there's no evidence of Josephus quoting Jesus here, but consider the similarity and the disparity of the situation to the verse from Matthew 16:25. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The distinction between surrender and repent is that surrender can happen without repentance. But repentance can't happen without surrender. Oftentimes people surrender to be able to fight again another day. And a side note here quickly, there's a story that I have in the show notes about 3,000 ISIS captives uh, in 2019 who exemplify this. You can find it in the show notes. It's a very interesting read. But they highlight this idea of surrendering without being repentant. Back to the script. So what does biblical repentance look like? Turn away, turn around, change direction, change your mind, a sense of remorse, all of which are common perceptions of repentance, but may not be completely biblically accurate. Dissecting the Greek is helpful, but I'm not certain a simple grammatical analysis of this gives a full picture. That said, for purposes of review, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, meta meaning change. For example, a caterpillar experiences a metamorphosis, a change into a butterfly. Its DNA may be the same, but physically and functionally becomes something totally different. Noia, meaning mind or thought, extending beyond what people think to the way a person thinks or the thought process in and of itself. And it may be helpful to consider the word paranoia here as defined, it's an intense anxiousness or fearful feeling and thoughts often related to persecution, threat, or conspiracy. There's somewhat of a dueling thought process going on here. 
And you might say that a person who's completely cured of paranoia would have experienced metanoia, a change in the way they think about the world and how they mentally process and react to the issues of everyday life. I fear that the problem of understanding biblical repentance in our culture is twofold. On the one hand, we've underestimated the degree of which we need to change. While on the other hand, we've sanitized the idea of noia, or mind and thought, to simply mean a singular thought or an idea or an opinion, as opposed to a way of thinking that extends into how we behave and how we process life. It's interesting to note that the word repent, metanoia, is used 53 times in the New Testament, according to the New American Standard Version at least, and surrender is used once. Repentance is paramount to salvation, and it includes the surrender, so there's no need to use surrender by itself. When Jesus sends out the disciples on their first little missions trip in Mark 6:12, the message was clear, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's such a serious thing that Jesus says it twice in Luke 13, 3 and 4, when he says, unless you repent, you will perish. Repentance works in tandem with grace and faith and confession. God places a premium on willful submission over forced obedience. So why would I spend so much time studying Josephus' usage of the word? Well, the answer is simple. Josephus' work takes place within the same time frame of most New Testament books and letters. Josephus' work provides a deeper cultural understanding of the word through the practical application in the New Testament era of how early church Christians would most likely have interpreted the word. The early church Christians had a front row seat to the Roman expectation of repentance. Josephus highlights two opposing entities, the Romans and the Jews. Jesus highlights the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. Selflessness versus selfishness. Holiness versus sin. Love versus hate. Josephus highlights the sovereignty of Rome over the Jews. Jesus highlights the sovereignty of God over mankind. Josephus reveals the patience of a Roman general while restraining his army. Jesus reveals the patience of God restraining the judgment of mankind and providing a way of escape. Josephus reveals Rome's desire to have a working relationship with the Jews. Jesus reveals God's desire to have a personal relationship with each of us. For these relationships to exist, both Jesus and Josephus state that there must be a change in the way people think to the extent that their behavior changes. And this change of mind isn't just what someone thinks, it extends to how a person thinks and how they behave. Josephus's DNA may have been Jewish, but he became Roman. While he could have hollered surrender, his message to the Jews in the cave and on the wall was repent. Willingly change your ways, put down your weapons, submit to Roman rule, and learn to think like a Roman, act like a Roman, and become a productive member of the Roman system. Betray your upbringing 
become a traitor and live. While I don't believe that any God-fearing Bible teacher would advocate being like a Roman for all its immoral behavior, the transformation of Josephus from royal, priestly, and military Jew into the poster child for Roman citizenship, it highlights what repentance looked like. An idiot's guide, if you will, to Roman citizenship. It's not rocket science. This is what repentance looks like. Is this not the story of the Apostle Paul? chief persecuting officer for the Pharisees and staunch protector of Jewish law. Paul hunts down Christians and presides over their imprisonment and execution. Then he has a radical encounter with Jesus and becomes the chief proponent of the gospel. He met annoyed. He had a radical encounter with Jesus and he willfully changed the way he thought, the way he behaved in regard to Judaism and Christianity. He completely flipped he betrayed his upbringing. He became a traitor for the gospel. Is this your story? Have you betrayed your upbringing in this sinful world? Have you willfully submitted and repented to the extent that you both think and behave from a heavenly or godly perspective? Do you think like Jesus? Do you process your day-to-day -day interactions in this world like Jesus would? Are you a productive citizen of heaven? Would you be considered a traitor by this world? And heaven rejoices in this repentance. And Jesus says this twice in Luke 15. Since I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need not repent. And again, I'll leave you with Matthew 16:25. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I'm Nate Vinio, and this is Something to Gnaw On. Lose your life for his sake. God bless you.